I'm sure that most of you have heard or read the wonderful poem entitled Footprints. Sometimes it's entitled Footprints in the Sand. And if you have not, especially the younger generation, I suggest you get a copy of this very moving poem and read it for yourself. If you're unfamiliar with this poem, it talks about a person walking along a sandy beach, walking with God. And as they walk and discuss about life, they leave two sets of footprints in the sand behind them. As they look back, the tracks represent the various stages of that person's life. But at certain times, the two tracks seem to only have one track. And as the person noted, when it was with one set of footprints, that was the lowest and the most helpless times of his life. Questioning the Lord, believing that perhaps he must have abandoned the person during those times of helplessness and hopelessness. The Lord explains to the person why, during those lowest of times, there was only one set of footprints. And from the words of the poem, the Lord says, Beloved, during your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Most of the time when you see this poem, it is credited as author unknown. But just a few years ago, they found the author. The author of the poem Footprints is Mary Stevenson. If you know the background of her life, you will know why she wrote this poem. Mary was born in 1922 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She lost her mother at the age of six. And her father was forced to raise all eight children by himself during America's great economic depression. Mary got married at the age of 16 to a man who physically and emotionally abused her. They had an infant son, but the abuse continued, which resulted in her running away with her infant son to another state to escape the abuse. Somehow her husband found her and was able to use his influence with some government officials to take away her son, their son. And for many years she fought to try to win the son back. But I believe she failed. She met another man named Basil and to whom she married and she would describe it as a happy marriage. And yet that marriage of joy did not last long because he died early in his battle with heart disease. You perhaps may now understand why in the heart of Mary as she wrote Footprints, she would wonder, where was Jesus? Where was the Lord in the most helpless and hopeless times of her life. Through her searching to an answer to this question, I believe she came to a resolution. And the Lord spoke to her heart and she wrote those beautiful words. During your times of trials and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was I, Jesus, the Lord, who carried you through. 
It is no doubt that there are many times in our life, perhaps for some of you even this morning, when you feel very alone in this world. Not only alone because you are physically alone, but even in a room full of people like this morning, you feel very spiritually isolated. You feel very emotionally drained, emotionally alone. And of course, in our minds, especially if you have grown up in a Christian school or in a church, you know that God is omnipresent. You know that theologically He is everywhere, but somehow that does not provide comfort to your isolation and loneliness. We would quote to one another our favorite verses to serve as an encouragement. We would quote verses from Hebrews like, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet, we know that's the truth. And yet, we still feel alone. Perhaps it is because, like this poem, when we see one set of footprints, is because we don't realize that it is God who is carrying us. We don't see His many handprints that are all over our lives every day. And we don't see God's handprints in our lives because we are not looking through the right lenses. And so we even feel more isolated and we feel discouraged and we feel alone. As we begin our new sermon series this morning, we will be looking at the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And as we will read about his life found in 1 Kings, we find out that Elijah was very much alone throughout his earthly ministry as recorded in the scriptures. He was alone. And in those times of standing alone by faith for the Lord, if we are to look carefully, we will see that God's handprints are all over his life, whether in the mundane or in the miraculous, whether in the simple things of life, or in grand works of God. If we're looking through the right lenses, we will see that God's handprints is all over the life of Elijah, even though he stood alone. And so it is for us as well. We are alone, but we are not alone. It is my prayer that throughout this series, we will learn to stand alone Knowing, realizing, recognizing, convicted of spirit that we are not truly alone. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. We will begin there. As we begin our study in the life of the great prophet Elijah. Put your bookmarks there. Put your Bible ribbons there. We will be in this book for the next few weeks. 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, it is in the Old Testament for those of you who are new to the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1 reads this, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. When we begin the story in the life of Elijah, we see 
that he is from the area of Gilead, east of the Jordan River. We don't have anything else about his background. We don't have information about his call into ministry. All we know in this first scene of Elijah's life is that he is standing before King Ahab. We don't know what prompted him to confront the king. Perhaps Elijah saw that Israel was going too far down the road of apostasy. He could no longer stand the worship of Baal replacing the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And so we see, as the curtains are unfolded, Elijah condemning and bringing God's judgment before the king of northern Israel named Ahab. Now this judgment, verse 1 tells us, is that there would be no more dew, no more morning moisture, no more rain for many years until God allowed it through the prayers of Elijah. Of course, this judgment comes from God because God alone controls the weather. Now you may say, well, what's so special about Elijah? If you've read through the Bible, you know that there have been many other prophets and judges, such as Samuel and Nathan, who have boldly proclaimed messages of condemnation and judgment to rulers. But what makes Elijah special? I think what makes Elijah unique, in a way, is that King Ahab was one of the most ruthless kings of Israel. Go back a few verses to chapter 16, verse 30. And there in chapter 16, verse 30, we have a description of Ahab. And from this description, you will see the type of boldness one would need to confront a king like this. Chapter 16, verse 30. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. The Bible tells us Ahab was so evil that he was more evil than his dad, Omri. And his dad, Omri, had been more evil than any of the previous kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. He was the most ruthless king of Israel. This is not someone you want to associate with. This is definitely not someone you want to challenge as you read chapter 16, you find out that Ahab marries a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel is a pagan princess who promoted the worship of Baal instead of the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And you will see how wicked Jezebel is in the weeks ahead. Now, if you want to see where Ahab ranks in the eyes of God in terms of his wickedness, or you want to see how God sees Ahab, look at verse 33 of chapter 16. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Of all the reputations you would want to have, Ahab provoked the Lord God more than any of his predecessors, more than any king of Israel. He made God the most mad. You know, every week I come here to implore you to try to live your life to please the Lord God as much as you can. And you can say that Ahab's goal in life was to live his life to displease the Lord God as much as he could. And to this terrible, ruthless, wicked king, the prophet Elijah comes forward and pronounces judgment upon him. 
that must have taken a lot of courage and boldness. Now go back to what Elijah says to this ruthless king, verse 1. He says, as commanded by God, there would be no more rain in Israel until I, Elijah, prays to God and asks God for it. Why this punishment of withholding of rain? You see, the judgment of no rain would hit Baalism right on its head. Because those who believed in Baal believed that Baal was the god of rain. And so this lack of rain would show that Yahweh, God, was the one true God and he alone controls the weather. But by doing so, you know what Elijah did? By saying those words, Elijah basically puts a very large target on his back. He puts a large X on himself. Because now for there to be rain, Ahab has to capture him, has to compel him, has to torture him, has to destroy Elijah so that he could get the much-needed rain the land would need. By saying something like that, Elijah is making himself of no friend to Ahab. Elijah would be a pariah. He would be an outcast. No one in their right mind would want to be associated with him, would want to be his friend. You remember what happened to Jesus Christ when he was arrested and crucified? The throngs of crowd who were so enamored with him throughout his Galilean ministry, who, who waved palm leaves and lined the streets as he walked in on that Palm Sunday, were no more. They all ran away because it would not have been a good time to associate with Jesus Christ, to be affiliated with him. Even his own disciples, as we've talked about in the courtyard of Caiaphas, swore that they had never been with this Jesus. That it was the same situation for those who would like to associate with Elijah. Not a great time to be his friend. Look also what Elijah says in verse 1. He says, I stand with the living God of Israel. Elijah is drawing a very clear line of demarcation between him and King Ahab. Elijah says, I stand on the God of the living God. I stand on the side of the living God, Yahweh. While you can either stand with me or stand with Ahab and the worship of Baal. Guess what? Most people would, for their own safety, would stand on the side of Ahab. And so that pretty much isolates Elijah and would make him one who was very lonely. Remember, this was before he would later get, towards the very end of his ministry, he would get an, an assistant named Elisha. In fact, you never read about Elijah being a part of a school of prophets. He was not in a band of brothers, a fraternity of sorts, where they would come and help him and provide support. And there were many schools of prophets that were prevalent at that time. No one was there to offer him protection and aid. What you have here in verse 1 is a picture of true isolation. A picture of loneliness. A feeling of being alone because you have drawn a line to do what is right. And my friends, that's the reality of life. In life today, if you stand up for what is right, if you say what needs to be said, if you stand up against evil, be ready to be isolated. Be ready to be alone. And how do you feel whenever you are alone, 
especially after you have stood up for something right. You feel helpless. You feel that God has abandoned you. In fact, when you stand alone, oftentimes, right after, you feel bad, and you begin to question yourself, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But if you look closely in the life of Elijah, you'll see that in his times of isolation, in his time of standing alone for the sake of Yahweh, you will see that God's handprints are all over. And if you stand alone and have the right lenses, you will find out that God's handprints are very real in your life. This morning we want to see two of God's handprints, and we see them in the first six verses. And the first handprint is in verse 2 and verse 3. Look with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. After this condemnation and judgment on Ahab pronounced by Elijah, God tells Elijah to leave the northern capital and go east of the Jordan and hide by the brook, the creek, the stream named Cherith. Now, two things strike at me in this instruction. First of all, notice verse 3. God wants Elijah to hide. Of all things, he wants Elijah to hide. And the next thing that strikes out to me is that he wants Elijah to hide next to a stream that flows into the Jordan on the eastern side. All right? Now, why is this interesting? First of all, of all things that God will tell Elijah to do, you know what the first thing he tells Elijah to do? Hide. Now, think about what must have been going through the mind of Elijah. Lord, I've just stood before the most wicked king of Israel, and I have proclaimed judgment on him because the omnipotent God has told me to. I should not be afraid of anything because I know you protect me. And now you're telling me to go hide. A bit of mixed message, you may assume, that comes from God, doesn't it? Really, God, hide? But God is going to teach Elijah and us a very important lesson about what it means to hide where God instructs us to hide. Interestingly enough, what a very odd place to go hide. You see, the instruction for the hiding place of Elijah is not the natural hiding place for Israel. The natural hiding place of Israel is near the south of Jerusalem and west of the Jordan. And in that area, you find lots of mountains and lots of caves. This is the place where David ran to hide from Saul. This is where Engedi is. This is the place where the Essenes hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. And for thousands of years, they could never find these scrolls. There are so many caves. This is a place, if you wanted to play hide-and-go-seek with your friends, you would die before you found them. There are so many places to hide south of Jerusalem, west of the Jordan. But this is not the place God told Elijah to run. In fact, he tells him to go to a place east of the Jordan. And I've been to the east of the Jordan. It's flat. It's exposed. Not a lot of places to hide. 
Of all the places that God tells Elijah to hide, he tells him to go hide in a place that is exposed. Because God wanted to teach Elijah that he would have to depend upon God for his protection. As I was thinking about this and reading about this, a picture came into my mind of a few years ago when my kids were very young. And when my kids were younger, we played hide-and-go-seek. And as I'm sure many of you parents play with your young children, I would always be it, and I would have to count one to ten. And our three children would scatter, trying to find a hiding place in the house. It's not much of a game because our house is small, and they don't hide very well. Their feet, their legs, their arms can be seen often from behind the doors they hid. They would often giggle and make noises, which would alert me to where they were hiding. Sometimes, which I often found very funny, they would hide under the blanket in our bed. And it's so obvious that there's a big lump in our bed that's not supposed to be there, and I know it's them. I guess in their childish mind, they think to themselves, as long as I don't see daddy, then he must not be able to see me. What would you do in that situation? I'm sure you would do what I did. I knew where they were, but I would pretend not to see them. Where are my kids? I would cry out. Where are you? Come out. I would tell my wife, where are my kids? They hide so well. And of course, when I say that, they would giggle and laugh even more. And then when they can't take it anymore, what will they do? They will run out and say, here I am, daddy. And as a parent, what's your response? You, you act surprised. Oh, there you are. In many ways, I think this is the example of what God wanted to teach Elijah. Elijah, hide there in a very flat land where everyone can see you, a land that is very exposed. But you have to trust me that I will not allow Ahab's men to find you. And you know, if you read ahead, you will find out that throughout the history of Elijah's ministry, Ahab's men never found Elijah. You see, in that location, in that hiding place, God wanted to show forth to Elijah his handprint of protection. God's handprint of protection in that place. And in the second part of his instruction in verse 3, notice this. God says, I want you to hang out next to a brook, a stream that feeds, note this, into the Jordan River. Now, most of us would read that and we would simply gloss over it. But this creek was a seasonal creek. It meant that there was water in it only during the rainy season, but it would soon dry up when it would not rain. It was not like the mighty Jordan River where hundreds of rivers fed 
water into it. And so there was always a constant supply throughout the year. God said, I want you to go to the brook Cherith, and that's where you will get your water supply. Meaning that this place where he would have to hide is a place that would be temporary. Now, for someone who's feeling very alone, being very isolated, wanting a bit of security, God tells them to go to a place that is exposed and temporary. What in the world is God thinking? Could not God have sent Elijah to a secure place, perhaps like Petra, where there was a permanent water supply like the pool of Siloam? God sends him to a exposed place with a temporary creek. He could at least have stationed Elijah next to the mighty Jordan River where he would have gotten water every day. But God was teaching Elijah a very important lesson. He was teaching him the lesson that it was not the place that makes one safe. It is the presence of God that makes the place safe. Did you get that? It is not the location, it is not the place that makes that place safe. It is the presence of God there that makes the place safe. And that's why God allows us oftentimes to be alone, to live in vulnerability, because it is in that position that we have to constantly seek for His protection It is in our moments of vulnerability that we can begin to see the handprint of God's protection. You see, if God had housed him in a well-hidden cave with an endless water supply, yes, Elijah would have been safe. But then in the back of Elijah's mind, he would have said, I'm safe because this place has kept me safe. But God put him into a very exposed, temporary position Because God wanted to teach Elijah, and he wants to teach us this morning, that it is not in a place that makes us safe. It is in the presence of God and his presence that makes us safe. The handprint of God's protection is found in that stream. His handprints are there. Do you see it? I mentioned this story to some of you before. But in our first year, when we moved back to the Philippines in 2005, been over 10 years ago, that uh, we experienced in that first year here a typhoon, an earthquake, and a volcanic eruption. When I experienced those three things, I turned to my wife and I said to her, Cindy, I think I'm going to die here in this country. And I know we are in the ring of fire. And this is commonplace, but for someone who is new to this country, of all the things to experience on your first year here, I said to her jokingly, I think God wants me to move back to Texas. At least I will live there. And my wife turns to me and says, no, don't you forget that in Texas there are tornadoes, and you can die by tornado. I said, that's true. I said, well, why don't we move to Canada. Not a lot of tornadoes there. She says to me, in Canada, you can die of cold. You just can't 
fight with a woman's logic. And I said, okay, fine. Well, then let's go find a place on the equator where there aren't a lot of typhoons, a lot of earthquakes and volcanoes. And he says, around the equator, she says, you can die of heat. So I was interested, where in the world can I live that would be the safest in the world? And like any person living in the 21st century, I Googled it. I typed there in Google, where is the safest place in the world? And you know what? There was a result. A response came back. According to a 2005 actuarian study, you know what an actuarian is? An actuarian is often a mathematician who works for an insurance company's uh, and they work for insurance companies to calculate when you will die. In whatever situation, whatever country, they're estimating how much your uh, insurance premium should be. And so according to a 2005 actuarian study that appeared on my Google search for where is the safest place in the world, can you try to guess which country in the world would be the safest to live in? To my surprise... The 2005 actuarian study of the safest place in the world was right here in the Philippines. Yes, I was shocked as well. And would you like to know what part of the Philippines the 2005 worldwide actuarian study says is the safest place to live in this world? It is on the island of Palawan. And it makes a lot of sense as they explain it. In Palawan, it's not made out of a volcanic uh, it's not made out of a volcano. It's not a volcanic island. That's why you have your underground river and your... Uh, it, it's, it's a limestone island, so it's very strong. Uh, it is not on a major fault line. It's not on the Pacific Plate. And so there are no direct faults uh, right under Palawan. And so not a lot of earthquakes. Not a lot of typhoons. If you know, if you track the typhoons we have every year... It comes and it hits the Philippines, and what happens to that typhoon? It always veers north towards Taiwan because of the way the pressures, the air pressures work. So Palawan is the safest place in the world. And so I told my wife, hey, honey, I, I found the place we should move to. It's the safest place in the world. We can move to Palawan. She retorts. She says, don't forget, Stephen. That in Palawan, they have jeepney drivers there also. And you can die by jeepney. Very logical. And that's why we stayed put for 10 years here. But as I thought about that, you know what the right answer is for where is the safest place in the world? The safest place in the world is in the hands of God. Wherever you are, in this world, whatever situation you are in, the safest place in the world is where God directs you in his hands. You see, what God wanted Elijah to understand in this exposed and temporary place by the brook Cherith was that he was in the safest of place in the entire world because that is where God told him to hide. It was not to hide because God feared that Ahab's men would find him. It was that God was telling Elijah to hide under his care. Go and hide by the brook Cherith because there you will hide under the shelter of my wings. 
And this morning, as you have come, do you see the handprint of God's protection in your life every day? The fact that you are here this morning at our 11 o'clock worship service, the fact that you were able to drive safely here or walk down the street to church, did you recognize that as God's handprint of His protection in your life, or did you take it for granted that you got here safely? Have you cultivated an eye that recognizes his handprint of protection in your life? For Elijah, it was the brook Cherith. What is it for you? You are a child of God. Nothing will happen to you that God does not allow. You are his child. His hand of protection is upon you whether you see it or not. But how much more encouraged you will be if you can see his hand of protection, whether on that plane or whether in a tall skyscraper or whether you live by the Marikina fault line or wherever you are, the safest place is in the hands of God where he directs you. The second handprint in verse 4. Look with me. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. More than just the water, God provided another handprint, a handprint of his provision through the ravens. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never read in the scriptures of any other time previously that God used animals to feed and sustain someone's life. This was the first time it's ever happened in history, according to recorded scripture. So can you imagine perhaps a bit of doubt in the mind of Elijah? What? You're going to feed me using ravens? Now, I don't know, a lot of you have grown up in the church, or you've heard this story in Sunday school, Elijah fed by ravens. Did anything, did anything jump out in your mind? Or was it very commonplace in your mind? Yes, yes, Elijah fed by ravens. Next story, please. This is not a Disney movie. For animals break into song and bring food and sew clothes and turn into people as they do in Cinderella. Okay? Maybe you've watched too many Disney movies that you think it does happen in real life. <laughs> These are untrained ravens. Wild scavengers, because that's what ravens are. And they would be the vehicle by which God would use to bring food to Elijah. Ravens are not known to even feed their young. Yes, there are different types of birds that will eat a food, regurgitate it to their young, which sounds really gross. But ravens don't do that. They don't even feed their youngs. Ravens eat food for themselves. And therefore, when God told Elijah that he would use ravens to feed him, these ravens would have to go outside of their natural tendencies to feed Elijah. Because the focus is not on the ravens. 
the focus is on the God who controls the uncontrollable raven. And just like the creek, the ravens were a picture of God's handprint of provision for Elijah. As you read through verse 4, as I've had many a times, I began to wonder, what, what actual food did these ravens bring to Elijah? For many years, I thought they must have brought him bird food. That doesn't sound very appetizing. But you know what? He's a prophet of God. He's got to suffer for God. One of the many questions I have for Elijah when I get to heaven is, what food did the ravens bring you? I think it's more than just bird food. Because if you jump down to verse 6, there's a bit of a clue there. Look what it says in verse 6. And the ravens gave Elijah, note this, meat and bread. Now, we read that, meat and bread. Okay. We can understand meat. Ravens are scavengers. They eat the meat off dead carcasses. Okay. Must be great for Elijah to know that he's eating meat from dead carcasses. But no matter, it's still meat. I'm sure the bacteria will be destroyed when you roast it. But this week, I thought to myself, bread. And that bread jumped out at me. Ravens don't make bread. I know a lot of us, we read through this, oh, meat and bread. Okay, no big deal. And we move on with the story. But just stop there and think. And the ravens brought him meat and bread day and night. Where did the bread come from? Ravens don't make bread. If your bird can make bread, please show me. I'll buy that bird from you. I know birds can sing. I know birds can talk. But I don't know any birds that can make bread. So the bread has to come from somewhere. And like to think, perhaps, and it's not outside the realm of possibility, that it would be great ironic justice or poetic justice, a great irony, that perhaps these ravens took this bread from the royal pastry house of King Ahab. Think about that. Just to feed Elijah. In fact, the Hebrew word for bread, le'em, can mean more than just bread as you would know it. It's food of a general variety. It could be berries, fruits, nuts, eggs. It could be a quarter piece of chicken leg. It could be anything. It could be fish. It is putting God in a box when you have in your mind that the food that Elijah ate must have been very bad. Because you know throughout the scriptures, every time that God wants to show his hand of provision, he always gives the best. The book of Isaiah, we are told that when God prepares the wedding supper of the Lamb, he prepares for us the best of meats, the finest of wines. Why could he not provide to Elijah the best of food? If he can bring quail to a wandering people way back in the Pentateuch, the wandering Israelites, could he not have given him great meat, new meat, new foods? 
And can you imagine every day Elijah sitting in this very temporary exposed place thinking to himself, what will God bring to me today? God had to teach Elijah to learn how to see the handprint of his provision through what the ravens would bring. What about you? Every day, you have three square meals a day, some of you more. As you look at the food, I know that ravens did not bring it to you. Perhaps at a restaurant, a server brought it with his hands. Or in your home, at the dinner table, your mother's hand brings that plate of food. When you stare at that food, what's your first reaction? I know most of yours is to complain. But when you look at the food, do you see that as a handprint of God's provision in your life? You know, in fact, we even pray, Dear God, thanks for the food. But we don't mean it. That's what we're supposed to say. But in our hearts of hearts, we say, well, no, that's from me. I worked hard. I have money. I bought the food. But I best, uh, we better thank God so we don't choke on the bone. So we don't get our, we don't get tummy aches or whatever. When you see that plate of food, do you see that as God's hand of provision? Because if you are not looking through the lenses of God's handprints throughout your life, you will not see that food as from Him. And so after this service, when you go out to lunch, would you, would you just stare at your food? And when you look at your food this lunch or dinner, I want you to think about Elijah and the raven. And I want you to see God's handprint of provision for you every day in the food that he's given you. For sure, that will lessen your complaint. For sure, your mind will be directed back at God again. Every time you eat, that is a handprint of his provision in your life. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Elijah, with a big target on his back, being hunted by Ahab's people, alone and isolated, will learn the lesson of God's handprints of protection and provision through a brook and a raven. And that is why it says in verse 5, note the verb, he stayed. Would you circle that? He stayed by the brook Cherith. He went because God instructed him. That's what verse 5 says. But you stay in a place when you know it is a good place. The Bible tells us Elijah stayed there because as God has promised him, it was a place of protection and it was a place of provision. He got a great meal in the morning. He got a great meal at night. And he was in the safest place in the entire world for him to be. 
he might have been physically alone. But he was not really alone. Because God was with him. And that's what the Bible tells us. He stayed. I'm sure perhaps the first few times he wondered if the ravens would come back. Wondered for the first few days whether the brook would dry up because remember, it would no longer rain. But after a while, I don't think he worried too much because in that time of being alone and isolated, he saw the handprints of God's protection and provision every day because in a time of isolation, his focus was directed towards God, looking above for when the ravens would come, looking upriver to see if there would be water. Instead of looking with fear and wonderment, will it come? He looked with joy and excitement. These are the handprints of God. Elijah has to learn this lesson. And that's why God told him to hide under the shelter of his wings and by the brook Cherith. Because as we'll talk about in a few weeks, Elijah, you'll see, will have no problems standing alone as one against 400 prophets of Baal. Because from a brook and a raven, he learned to see God's handprint of protection and provision in his life. Something interesting happened to me this week. Uh, my daughter uh, asked to talk to me. She said, Daddy, can I talk to you? I could sense that she was very sad. And so I said, honey, sure, you can talk to me anytime. And she said, Daddy, I need to tell you something. I said, sure. But she was a bit hesitant. I said, honey, why won't you tell me? She said, Daddy, it may make you sad. I said, it's okay. Don't worry. Daddy's a big boy. And I said, what is it? What would you want to tell Daddy? She said, Daddy, I've got to tell you what my friend told me. I said, sure, what is it? She said, Daddy, my friend told me that her mother told her that you were the worst pastor in the whole wide world. That you are the worst pastor of all the pastors out there. Now, don't feel bad for me. I've been in the ministry long enough, and even as a pastor's kid, to develop very thick skin. But I could sense in my daughter that she was very upset. And so I tried to comfort her. I said, honey, it's okay. I know that there are people there that don't like me very much. And I asked her, honey, how does it make you feel when you hear that? Janelle told me, daddy, it makes me feel very sad. And so uh, in a moment of great tenderness, I, I carried her and put her on my lap. And I asked her a question. I said, Janelle, do you love daddy? And she said, yes, daddy, I love you. I said to her, Janelle, I don't want you ever to worry about what other people say. As long as daddy knows that you love him, I will not mind what others say about me. As long as you love daddy, 
as long as I know that Janelle loves Daddy, I don't mind if others don't like me. And I gave her a big hug, and I said to her, don't worry. And she walked away feeling much happier. As I thought about that experience, I remembered as I was preparing this sermon, that's how God treats us. Even if the world tells us you're the worst person in the entire world, making you feel very much isolated and alone, you can say in your heart, I don't mind that others don't like me as long as I know that my God loves me very much. And he loves you very much. And he shows you every day through his handprints of protection and provision. You don't have a raven and you're not by the brook Cherith, but you have a home, shelter, and you have three meals a day. And those are God's handprints in your life to tell you just how much he loves you. And when you understand that his handprints are all over your life, you will learn to stand alone knowing that you are not alone. And if you still don't see that there's a heavenly father who loves you deeply, then as we partake in communion a bit later, you will know and be reminded again that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and for me. And if that does not prove how much he loves you unconditionally, I don't know what will. And so we are reminded this morning that if he loves us very much unconditionally, then it doesn't matter if other people like you or not. And that is why it is important to see God's handprint throughout your life every day. Because it is in the handprints of God that you see his love. And when you know of his love, you will be able to stand alone knowing you are not alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through your word, you brought encouragement to me and I hope to those who have heard that we would begin to cultivate eyes that see your handprints every day at work in our lives, in your protection and in your provision, from a plate of food to arriving safely somewhere. Help us to recognize and realize that the safest place on earth is not a place, but it is in a relationship. It is in the presence of God. And when we stand in your presence, nothing can harm us. Be with us now as we are reminded of the greatest handprint of your love for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And through communion, we may be encouraged to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.